0: Welcome back to the HPBA podcast. Before we start today's episode, I want to introduce a new member of our team, Beth Carpenter, who's a third-year resident at Brook Army Medical Center, will be helping us uh, going forward. Beth is a general surgery resident and a general surgical oncology fellow hopeful, as well as an HPB heroin in training. We're very excited to have Beth as a part of the team, and we hope that she'll help us get even more content out to you in the future. Without further ado, I'm going to let Beth introduce our next episode.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the HPBA podcast. Today, we're extremely excited to share our interview with Dr. Alice Way. Dr. Way is an associate attending HPB surgeon at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. She is the co-director of surgical initiatives at the David M. Rubenstein Center for Pancreatic Cancer Research, as well as an associate professor of surgery at Weill Cornell School of Medicine. We were honored to spend time with her during the IHPBA meeting in New York this year, and we hope you all enjoy.
2: So you guys don't know me, so my name's Alice Wei, I'm an associate attending at Memorial Sloan Kettering. I joined MSK in 2019 and prior to that, I was an attending in Toronto at the Toronto General Hospital in the HBP department for over a decade. My secret power, my superpower is that I'm a very good adult learner. And so I'm very good at learning, continuously learning and picking up new tricks. I would actually say that's something I'm really good at. And I do want to, and that's something we try to teach the residents and fellows, and it's a little bit hard to do, right? So nobody should be doing the same operation on the first day that they graduate as the last day. But how do you do that and learn throughout, I think, is really challenging. And that kind of continuous adult learning, both technical and uh, uh, cognitive and judgment-wise, is something that um, I, I actually think I'm particularly good at. And, and, of course, I'm biased because, you know, how many people mid-career leave a great job for another great job. Mm-hmm. But I think it's about sort of active change management in your life. Right? I'm a pancreas cancer surgeon. I spend my whole life telling people when they come to my office that changes happen to them that they didn't want. Right? And you can see in their eyes whether or not that's going to be something they can adapt to or not. And, you know, there's fear, whatever. And I and I think what happens is you see people who, when you give this information to, or who at their end of their lives feel content with the life they live. Does that make sense? Yeah. Versus the life, that, and, and I've always been curious about what that is. So I think one of the things is that, you know, uh, we work in a field where we tell patients about change they don't like. We never think about change ourselves. And maybe we should choose change actively throughout our careers in order to... You know, in order to enjoy, you know, in order to grow as people grow as uh, in our profession, and um, manage change. So when it comes to you later on, you can do it. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely.
1: Because
2: one of the things is that your career is long, and you should not like the same thing I said about tech. You should not be doing the same uh, work on the first day as the last day. You should think about your career in five-year spans. In the first five years, I'm going to do this. In the second five years, I'm going to do this. In the you know and then my mid career I'm gonna do and the end of my career and how to acquire new skills so you're ready for the next phase.
0: I mean, what's your advice then for somebody five years out from training? Like, where do they need to be searching for that knowledge? Where do they you know where do they go for it? You know, most people are just kind of their heads down and they're working, right? Right. How do you pick your head up? Well, where do well, you
2: look? well, I think first of all you have to have a plan that your career is different right in the first phase the middle phase and the second and the last phase and that you have to look at the people who are in that phase that are your mentors or people you aspire to be and see what skills that you they have that you don't have and try to gain them right you know the same way, like you don't go from being a medical student to being a attending surgeon, but when you're a fellow and then the first day of your attending is not that different. So that's what mm-hmm. you need to think about. So I'll give you an example. So you know I had children early in my career and I did another master's and I just worked like a dog, right? But then my children got a little bit older and I thought, you know, like um, I might want to learn. I might want to do administration in the long run. It matches the health services work I do. And so what do I need to be an administrator? Well, I'm certainly not going to go from, like, a cog to the chief, right? But I need to learn what a committee does. I need to learn how to run a meeting. I need to know how the parts fit together. Like, what's the C-suite? What's a manager role? What's a vision role? What does the American college do? What does the society? Like, learn how these compartments fit together. And then you have to learn about yourself. Like, what are you good at? And what are you bad at? Like, I will tell you, I don't think I'm very good at... um, Corporate work, right, managerial work, you know, Uh, I like like societies, I like American College, but people are different. Some people want to be the CEO of their Mm -hmm. hospital. Mm -hmm. So you have to learn about yourself and you have to gain those skills. You gain those skills gradually, then an opportunity will come where you can serve in another capacity, and then you learn a bit from that. You learn by seeing people who are good, You, you learn by watching people who are bad, right? You aspire to be the good ones and not to do the same things as the bad ones. And then different opportunities come, right? And then you have to give up things in order to do the other things, but but am I ready to give up clinical? Well, probably not yet, but maybe in five to seven years I will, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I think teaching people that your career is long is number one, and that you don't have to do everything in the first five years.
0: Can you talk about your, how that's changed for you? Like I'm thinking for like the young surgeon, you know. When I look ahead, I think I have an idea of, of what I'll be in twenty years. But but, that changes. Too. I think yeah, twenty years sure. is too
2: long. I okay. think you have to have medium time frame, and you have to have long term goals. I mean, you know what I mean. You have to have yeah. a, you have you have to have sh- short term plans, okay. me you know medium term um, aspirations, and long term kind of goals, right? Like, because you know, in thirty years, you don't know if you want to be, yeah. uh, you know. Uh, the chair of the american college or the head of department or retired right, right. you know and um, but you do know probably that you would like to contribute to x in mm-hmm. 5 years mm-hmm. you'd like to learn leadership skills and be a good leader like those are the kinds of things i think you can do and and then i think you just you have to be happy with what you have like i guess that's part of it some people think they come and say oh, i'm going to be like a a left-sided pancreas surgeon mm-hmm. and you think like what are you talking about like nobody know like you know how you you know and so you have to be a little bit kind of um i think you get to change the words of what you want to match what you have does that make sense yeah you know some of it is just changing the language to be the language of the other stakeholder well you sometimes your own stakeholder right so you basically have to change the language so it sounds like you're doing something good
1: well how so to be prepared for seizing the moment so to speak when the change that may suit you presents itself as you were talking about how do you, does a young surgeon for example such as myself continue the momentum of gaining skills because obviously as you progress through a career you you gain skills that allow you to recognize the opportunities mm-hmm. when they come rather than just kind of floating through with inertia yeah does that make sense yeah how, how, does a, how does a young surgeon do that?
2: Well, I mean, you have to have mentors and sponsors, right? Because what happens with mentors is they guide you and they tell you, you should do this, or you know, this committee is actually worth sitting on. Right. I actually think the IRB is something worth sitting on when you're young. You get to read everyone's grants, yeah. you get to do it right. And someone will tell you that even if it sounds like you don't want to do it. A sponsor will be like, you know what, Alice, there's a job that came up in this area, or they'll just forward you stuff. Right? I applied for my policy job because someone just forwarded it to me. And it never occurred to me to do this, right? Because I just sit there and wait for people to you know, tell me I'm great and give me stuff. But that's, that's not how it works. So. <laughs> yeah. And then I looked at it and I thought like, um, well, I'm not really sure if this is going to be good for me. And I started reading it and I was like, I'm like perfect for this, right? So sponsors send you stuff. They encourage you. And so you don't have to do everything yourself. Because the people that you work with kind of know your strengths more than you probably do. So that makes that's sense. a very
1: good point. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, because I, I don't know what I don't know, right? So I, I sit here and say as a young surgeon in my second year as faculty, I'm like, I, I have a growth plan for myself, yeah. right? Like acquiring skills yeah. you know, in, in, uh, in a safe fashion to yeah. grow, but I don't know if that's the right growth plan to allow me to achieve you know, what I want to do at the end of five, 10 years. Yeah.
2: Well, and you also have to know why you want those things, right? I mean the best thing is to want something because like you deeply value it. Like you want to give back to the profession, right? because no one actually cares what your title is, no one even knows. My parents have no mm. idea what MSK is, right? <laughs> so the idea that like I'm doing something for a title does nothing for the people that I care about the most, like my family and my, you know. So the most important thing is like if to to try to achieve things that actually you value and that you will carry with you even if no one cares. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So and then, and so I think for someone who's young like number one you have your own ideas of what you want you should get outside counsel, right? What what I mean is your peers, mm-hmm. especially peers who are really frank behind closed doors but you you know um, mentors both within your team people who know you well and people who don't know you well, and people who might be even be in different specialties, right? So and, and, and a radiologist that's a friend, or a urologist or something, because they can give you a bit of guidance. Um, so I, I do think that that's one way to do it. And, and, you, and you also can't be afraid to change. One of the things we always undervalue ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. We think that we're gonna do something different and then we're gonna either forget everything we know, or, but actually it's really invigorating like incredibly invigorating, right? Because you, we're, we're smart people, we know how to learn, and, and we'll probably enjoy it, right? Like I was not an MI, I am like a old, right? So I, uh, <laughs> an open surgeon, I'm like a maximally invasive surgeon. Uh, MIS was something that was like, people said, well, you come on, you're gonna start MIS. And I was kind of like, okay. <laughs> like, I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. It wasn't like, I wasn't really super into it, right? But it, like, that's what I mean. That's an opportunity. I could have said no, right? But I said, okay, I'll, I said, I'll think about it, right? And then, and then I decided, you know, to do it. And we did it in a really constructive way. And then, and then and, so I wouldn't say I'm a zealot but that's you know what I mean but yeah. I, I think um, you someone gives you the opportunity you think well that's a niche I can be in and then you try to figure out how you can learn it so no one I'm um, a little bit a little bit self-taught but um, you know you're open to that so some people are not open to that and that's mm. probably something where they shouldn't be doing those things they should probably do other things you know uh, run the finance department or you know something like that so you have to know yourself have you taken have you guys taken leadership courses yet no. So at some time, you'll be offered a formal leadership training, whether it's through the HPBA Young Leaders Program, American College as a Young uh, uh, Program. I would r- really recommend that you uh, take it at, when you've got a little bit of um, tra- uh, work under your belt, because um, even we might think it's easy, but it's not, and there's a lot of skill acquisition, mm-hmm. and uh, and take it seriously. Like do it, take it seriously, really learn. Like I did a one-year leadership course as part of another role i had uh, it was a really substantial commitment but it really really helped so mm-hmm. i would say
0: look for those formal opportunities as well and you i mean you went through a major career transition mm-hmm. you know moving from canada to the united states from toronto to memorial Can you talk about how that happened were you i mean we sort of talked about dr Clear. you guys both came yeah. both left the same institution yeah. but we talked about this with dr Clear. you know were you looking for that did it just fall into your lap and kind of what was that like to you know to be established and then kind of pick everything up and start over again
2: yeah you know it's, it's obviously it's not a very common situation yeah. and, and i think um i think it was a particularly good match it's one of these things you know you have a gestalt there's the, you know i've been had a, a, an opportunity to move to different places Um, But in my mind's eye, number one, I didn't do surgical oncology, so it was a curiosity for me. Should I have been a surgical oncologist rather than an Mm -hmm. HPB transplanter? And then the other question is I liked, I always wanted to live in America, like I wanted to check it out. So it's one of these things where like certain things click, they Mm -hmm, stick in mm -hmm, your mind. mm -hmm. The the story actually is that I was at the AHPBA, usually in February, as you know, Mm And I know I know Mike Angelica professionally, so he comes up. We we're talking. He said, "Oh, Peter Allen's leaving." I said, "Well, that's nice. That's good. You know, you should hire a woman. You probably need one in your group. Uh, you know." And so that was in February, because of course, in my mind, I was, "Why would I ever leave Toronto, right?" Mm-hmm. And Peter Allen, uh, and so um, you know, and I thought nothing of it, but it stuck. You know, it's one of these like little yeah. ideas that yeah. sticks in your head, and and I just thought, "Well, I wonder who they hired." Just curious, like you know who they hire and it's you know, such an unusual position, a mid level job and yeah. pancreas at this big place, you know yeah. sure they'll you know so it's one of these things and and so you kind of have to trust yourself, I think too, um and so we just want it stick stuck around and then I thought, you know what listen like. <laughs> There are really never the opportunity for like a mid-level job in pancreas to come up ever at this kind of institution. I should at least ask. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. But I wouldn't have asked. I wouldn't have stuck in my mind if, it, if I wasn't ready for something. Right. Does that make sense? Yes, so yes. you kind of know. So you have to know yourself.
0: You were, you were ready. You didn't even know you were ready. That's so, right.
2: I didn't yeah, know. I was, yeah. And I have a great husband, too. So he is very outside the box thinker. And I said, you know what? And he said, you know what? You should do it. He so said, you can't leave the life that's in your imagination. You have one life to lead, and it's the one you actually lead, right? If you imagine in your life that you're going to live in New York, that you're going to live in America, you're going to rule the world, it doesn't happen if you don't do it. So you have to do a step besides imagination. And the consequences are sometimes one way, right? Because number one, let's say you get offered a job, any job. You go in your department, and you say, I got a job. What can it give me? they say, well, bye for you. Goodbye. See you later. Or whatever they say, yeah. right? Like, I mean, you have to be prepared for to take the consequences, which I think is terrific. Yeah. yeah. So you just have to be ready for it. And I think I would encourage people to do it.
0: What was it like having to sort of start over? I mean, and especially, you know, Memorial is a big place, a well-established apartment, obviously. It's not like you were coming and teaching them things. You had to come in and kind of, I'm sure, adapt some of their ways and things like that.
2: It's, a, I mean, listen, I, I think of a thick skin and probably I'm a little bit of an optimist and, and don't want, but I, I, I it's, it's actually hard. Like, it's yeah, really sure. hard. You know, I mean, Rob Krell, your yeah, partner, yeah. and I did my very first case with me ever at MSK. I don't know if he told you about I it. Think, yeah, yeah, And it's just one of these funny things where you're just like, well, you know, and I was at the same institution. I trained at the same institution, so I didn't know another way, yeah. um, but um, I, I, I didn't know anything about America. I didn't know what Connecticut was. I didn't know, I didn't know what. Uh, anything was, right? And so, but you know, I I think we're resilient people, we're good at learning, you know, and so uh, it was pretty scary. I mean, the biggest change for me is that my research is quite different because the strengths at my old institution are not the same as the strengths at my new institution. Mm -hmm. I will say, gave me a deep appreciation of my old institution in an incredibly positive way. And I think that um, one of the things to keep in mind, I mean, I was, what what I carried with me when I came was that like I was an ambassador for my institution. Mm. I had a great, you know, they wouldn't have hired me if I didn't have something that was going to contribute. And Mm. I think that helps. I would say it was tough in hindsight, but it's mostly because you're one is neurotic.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You're neurotic about your skills. You're not. You're neurotic that you don't meet the grade. Yeah. You're neurotic yeah. that the fellows might think that you're a goofball. Like I mean, there's all sorts of things right. that you worry about. Right. I mean, the biggest thing. This is very interesting. Is that they'd never heard of Toronto before? Because unless you're an H.P.B. surgeon, like you know, these yeah. people right. and I'm, you know, they were like, "Well, who are you? You're just some person that they right. are, right? right? You know, whereas like you know, unless Bloomgard would know who I am, but only those people. Does right. that make sense? Right.
1: <laughs> So when, when you made that change, and this might be a nice segue to talk a little bit about acquiring new skills, yeah. um, did you feel pressure to acquire new skills at that point or did you have to change some of the skills you already had to, as Tim was saying, to kind of do things the way or similar to how things were done in New York compared to Toronto? And what were the barriers to that?
2: You know, certainly I wanted to be part of my new team rather than, you know, having a whole different set of instruments or, you know, because because I, you know, because I think that kind of standardization of an experience is important. And so I'd never done a Bloomgarden anastomosis before Mm. I came. And I was like, why don't I ever do that? Anyway, so then I watched the TVA video and I was Mm. like, I'm going to try it. So I did a couple in Toronto and then I came and I started and I did try to adapt my technique. And I think... um, because I'm open-minded to trying that, that a technique, and actually the fellow said, "No, no, do it the way you did it before, because we want to see more." Than ah, we're sure. right. so yeah. they were like, "Don't do it the Bloomgart way. Do it, you know, yeah. the way you're trained." Right. So, they also which, and then and that makes you feel good. It makes you feel like you know you're contributing something. To you. So, so um, the instruments are all different. The pickups are all different. The uh, the rotations are shorter. It's really it, it's a little bit different. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think another nice segue there, you talked about your research a little bit. Um, You know, you've published and talked about centralization of care for pancreas cancer. I mean, I think coming from Canada to America, it's such a different, different world and kind of like, what's your experience been and what are your thoughts on that? Since you have a very unique perspective of, of being across both countries.
2: Yeah. So, well, so, so thanks for asking. Just for those listeners who may not know, I was actually one of the policymakers at Cancer Care Ontario. So, my, my portfolio was actually to help centralize complex cancer surgery and to monitor and maintain it. So, for H P B surgery, you know, some of my predecessors like Bernie Langer and Robin McLeod helped establish that. And you know, so those are the things I did carrying forward. And it was a very top-down centralized policy, which uh, was very, very successful. So uh, when I came here, I was really naive that, you know, oh, I'm going to mm-hmm. come and I'm going to help everybody in America centralize. I mean, which one of the things I think that particularly people from different countries don't realize is that scale is really important, mm-hmm. right? So. Canada has 35 million yes. people, Intense. America has 300 yeah. million, yeah. 300 plus million mm-hmm. people. And so with scale comes different issues and different solutions. So I now recognize much more why uh, regionalization or centralization is something we aspire to but aren't able to achieve yet. And I think the solutions will be different, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things with centralization is that physicians surgeons, policymakers, and even healthcare systems and payers really do want the best for patients. They just have a different way of trying to get there. And so if you're able to convince people that like, what you want with centralization is actually going to help things in the long run, you can get more buy-in. But I think the solutions are not going to be at the level of the government. That's one thing that was new to me. Right. But it doesn't mean that uh, whether or not it's at the payer, whether or not it's at the healthcare system, mm-hmm. whether or not at, it's at the individual patient, the solutions will be different. And so that's one of the ways we're trying to look at that. And the American College is doing it with a different system of not centralization, but accreditation and mm-hmm. verification, mm-hmm. Which, which I think might be a substitute. That has been really exciting, And but it's a whole new language, right? And for people who aren't um, familiar with it, it does it does take time.
1: So just for the people who might be listening who are not completely familiar with what the concept is, what, what would you define is the overall goal of centralization of care as it pertains to, let's just say, pancreas cancer care? And are those goals potentially different in the Canadian system? versus the American system because of the different... Healthcare system. Yeah, system. Yeah,
2: yeah I mean, the goal or or the the word centralization <clears throat> is a, is a, a, a way of formally consolidating services for, let's say, complex cancer surgery, pancretectomy is probably the, you know, uh, one of the key examples for that, but any kind of complex surgical services to a fewer number of more specialized sites. The reason to do that, there's lots of reasons you can do it, the reason that surgeons like ourselves care about it is to improve the quality of care, right? Other people, governments, or payers might want to do it to save money, but just to be really clear, none of us are talking about it to save money mm. as the, the real reason. Mm. The real reason is to improve the quality of care. Uh, in the short term, that's to improve the quality of surgical care so that more the right patients gets the right operation by the right person at the right time. Um, And and centralization in a formal way is really different than like secular centralization, right? Sometimes people build a practice, they have a high volume, but that's not the same thing as centralization. But the goal is to improve care. And then sometimes it's also to improve value, which is also to save, cut down on costs, Mm -hmm. but really it's to improve care for the patient. The other thing it's not is to improve the experience and the volume of surgeons. Right, so let's just be really clear. We're not one of the things I think, and one of the barriers is that when someone like me, I'm a high volume surgeon, stands up and talks about centralization, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what the person sitting in the audience thinks is Dr. Wei wants me to send all my cases to her. That's actually not the aim, right? So that's really, I think, another important thing. This isn't to benefit the surgical practice of high volume surgeons, it's to improve the care for patients.
0: What do you? What would you say to a patient who doesn't want to travel for care? Because I think that's one of the barriers in the U.S. that, you know, something uniquely American about small-town America. I think that they just, you know, they want to get their care close to home. And I, I think there's also the aspect of, you know, being close to family while you're recovering and things like that. But, I mean, I think there are one of the significant obstacles in America is that some people don't want to travel. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of other obstacles, but.
2: I mean, listen, I I know there's been some studies that looked at the the VA system, looking at patients Mm -hmm. who don't want to travel. You know, that's older data, and and I think what we see now is that if you look at some of the geographic and geospatial mapping, is that, in fact, people do drive by a high-volume place to go to a low-volume place, particularly in the suburban areas and and the urban areas, much more. And and that's probably related to healthcare systems, Mm -hmm. related to their insurance. I mean, what I tell the patients is that you travel to New York for a baseball game, yeah. You should travel here for the most important event of your life, right? And so that's one way to do it. But also to recognize that patients don't, don't want to travel, but they're not able to for reasons that they probably aren't telling you. They have no one to drive them. Yeah. The little old widow who's 79, whose husband drove her whole life, can't take a $400 car you know, to come visit you. Telemedicine with COVID, I think, has been a really good opportunity to... Um, to uh, uh, overcome some of those. And then although we talk about traveling for care, for surgery, the really other important part is with telemedicine, you know, some of the most important opinions we give are actually that we don't operate. Mm-hmm. So giving people access to a high quality opinion, whether or not they choose to ultimately travel to you I think is incredibly valuable. Yeah, and one yeah. of the quality metrics I think we don't measure is who sees a surgeon because the person I turn down is perhaps a more important decision for them, for their lives at the prognosis than the one I ultimately operate on.
0: Mm, interesting. A perfect segue into another pancreas cancer topic that we wanted to cover, uh, which is, you know, the use of definitive radiotherapy rather than surgery. Can you talk a little bit about how that's developed at Memorial and then, you know, you we can cover that and then I want to talk about the decision making there.
2: You, you know, so, so obviously as better systemic therapy is now available for pancreas cancer, we're we're all much more in, interested in local regional treatment. So surgery obviously is the one we know the best, but the other big local regional therapy that we know works for other cancers is radiotherapy. Mm-hmm. And we still don't understand whether radiotherapy works well in pancreas cancer, and if and when it works, how it works, and who it should work for, does that make sense? I do think that there are patients who are never resectable, right? We can talk, we can show videos, we can talk about how we're gonna take all these things out and put them all back together again, but ultimately there's a group of patients for whom have true locally advanced disease, will never have surgery. And I think for those patients, whether or not definitive radiotherapy, so I'm talking ablative dose radiotherapy, Mm -hmm. what I mean is that ablative dose means tumor killing doses is possible. I I think the, the answer is yes, it's possible. Whether or not we have the technology yet to get there, I don't know. But the biggest limitations for pancreas cancer radiotherapy, unlike head and neck, unlike anal, is that the toxicity of the GI tract, the toxicity radiation, high-dose radiation in the GI tract is our rate-limiting step, right? But the same way that there is advances in surgery, there's also advances in computational uh, image guidance, radiotherapy, and so now they can deliver these doses with... Uh, respiratory gating, with daily adaptive planning, with protons, which really limit the spread of uh, damage. And, and so I think we'll probably get there. The same concept of uh, uh, borderline resectable vascular contact that we talk about, what's borderline treatable for radiation is actually the DI tract. Mm. I really believe one of the ways we might get there is do a combination therapy where they treat definitively what's borderline for us, and we treat definitively surgically what's borderline for them. So that we're giving patients a true multimodality approach to a disease.
0: So you would focus the radiation, like let's say unscented tumor that touches the duodenum also touches the vessels. Right. You'd focus the radiation on the vessels knowing that you're going to take the duodenum no problem, but you want to accentuate that margin right. on the vessel. That's
2: right. So it's a vascular sparing approach. Yeah. We're using tumor killing doses in the area that the surgeons can't tackle well, yeah, and they give suboptimal doses of radiation to the area that surgeons can easily tackle, yeah, right? So that kind of, I mean, I'm at, you know—I'm very, very interested in that going forward. I, I think that that's the way to go. Listen, we, arterial vascular resections, I think are a different discussion, uh, yeah. but I think, yeah. I do think that there's a role for a blade of dose radiotherapy, what we've shown. So Chris Crane, who is, I'm lucky enough to work with at Memorial Sloan Kettering, is um, a radiation oncologist who's been working on this, technique, it's really uh, one of his life passions for many, many years, and that he really refining it, uh, the technique, so that we, patients are getting excellent local regional control. Very similar to surgery, right? That says a lot. Mm-hmm. Why are we operating if the local regional control is, this, is the same? Or, and so, you know, with, if we improve systemic therapy, we improve local regional control, we can probably pair or marry the two techniques together. We see it in HCC, actually. with tear first, then surgery, uh, bridging therapy. So I think the same kind of thing can be applicable for pancreas.
0: Can you talk about, I mean, you guys have probably in the last five years, one of the most extensive experiences with this. Can you talk about what complications you've seen
2: yeah, so, you know, we look at the grade three complications, grade three or four complications, mm-hmm. and they, they, they are pretty typical, so GI bleeding is the biggest one, uh, GI perforation, but we really haven't seen rates that are substantially higher than you would get for SBRT or for um, uh, conventional uh, post-op radiation, okay. uh, um, I, I, IMRT. I will tell you the one thing that we're not sure is, so we do have a trial called the MAYBE trial, which is, maxim, which is um, ablative dose radiotherapy for locally advanced disease. We actually just finished accruing. We're waiting for our data, so that should be published soon. Oh. Dr. Reingold is the PI for that. And we'll have a better sense of uh, what, that, what, that, what, that sh- what that's going to show in terms of long-term consequences. But ultimately, for patients in whom surgery is not possible, yeah. the trade-off yeah. of uh, disease control versus uh, uh, side effects is probably worth it. We also see in patients who are untreated perforations from stents, bleeding yeah. from tumors, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, leaks from bypasses that didn't go well. So I mean, I think it's uh, trying to balance the options they have with the disease control they're getting. We, we actually have a trial that is about that we're putting that is about to open, looking at a total neoadjuvant approach followed by a blade of dose radiotherapy for borderline resectable and locally advanced resectable disease, for which we're going to then explore them mm-hmm. and then do a lot of. Correlational work to see whether or not the of doses are killing okay. doses and looking at the, you know, geographically mapping what's going yeah. on. So that we should be open the next few months.
1: Just yeah. so the listeners um, know, we'll put this in the show notes, but we're we're discussing primarily a, a publication from Dr. way and Annals of Surgery in twenty twenty one. Put that in the show yeah. notes. Yeah.
0: And now you talk about giving higher doses on the vessels. I mean, I think most of us are comfortable operating after conventional radiotherapy. Have you noticed a difference in the quality of the vessel if you have to do vein resection, reconstruction? Is there a difference? Are you worried about that? You know, things like that.
2: Uh, So the answer I haven't noticed is I do, you know, people anecdotally talk about how these operations are harder after radiotherapy. I actually think they were always hard. (laughs) yeah fair enough <laughs> and so whether or not they're truly harder or not i'm not i'm not sure because you know because we don't have the opportunity to operate on the same yeah. person at two different Four. options i mean i enter, i do an, i i tend to do an end to end reconstruction so i'm kind of out of the radiation zone or interposition yeah. i don't have to interposition graph very often but i think an inter you know doing taking out the treated vasculature is really important you know we have seen in these patients post operative Portal venous stenosis, sure. whether or not it's a technical issue, whether or not it's radiation, I, I don't know, because we're still learning. The, the answer is there could be issues, yeah. but we yeah. haven't seen any true signal or big signal at the moment. And um, from my perspective, I, I see this as an arterial sparing approach, so I wouldn't pair this approach with a planned arterial resection. Right. But, I and I do think, you know, thinking about whether or not you should take out the vein, rather than doing a patch is probably very reasonable.
0: And then just last question on that. Currently, like where are you using, where are you not operating? Is it based on their comorbidities? Is it, you know, if you have a 99 that doesn't come down to normal, is that a place where you say, well, let's radiate and see what happens? Or do you think definitive radiation for that patient? Can you give kind of a a quick rundown of when you make that decision? You have to make that decision before you radiate because they got to figure, they're not going to do conventional and then come back and do more, right? right? You got to decide conventional or or definitive. Uh, how do you make that call?
2: Yeah, so um, it's an integrative approach, sure. I, I, and so we certainly talk about it at our uh, multidisciplinary uh, cancer conferences very, very frequently. I, I would say for the tumors that meet the NCCN criteria of locally advanced, uh, that we would favor an ablative dose radiotherapy right because we know it doesn't burn the bridges for uh, you know what I would call consolidated surgery after. Right? Okay. If we're really looking. Um, uh, and so, so we would favor that for patients who have sort of infiltrative hmm. lesions that are in contact with
0: a substantial amount of the artery. So, just a quick question on that. Sorry. Yeah. So you're basing that off imaging, and then my experience has been after radiation, the imaging never looks better; it always looks worse. So when, how do you Fuzz. know? How, yeah, how do you know when Fuzz. to operate? Then?
2: Yeah, right. I, know, so we, so I would say that we choose radiation based on the post chemotherapy imaging. You are absolutely right that after radiation, it's really difficult to tell whether there's true disease or not. I really do think that, and patients who have true localized disease, uh, that you cannot assess and and so that they should be offered an exploration. I know that that's a little bit of an aggressive approach, but ultimately I think we're all saying here is that we recognize that imaging is inadequate to fully Allow patients to, to for us to know. Sometimes you get there and it's really easy. Sometimes you get there, it's very challenging. So you is know, does 99
0: help? Like, do you see 99 dip with radiation when it's coming from local disease? I,
2: I don't. I don't think any of us know. What yeah, I would say yeah. is
0: what I what we what really is important is if you see a good
2: response to systemic therapy, yeah, yeah. and particularly of the nadir. The lowest um, ca nineteen nine is within normal range, yeah. right? So that yeah. it makes us all very happy, right? Right? right, right. Uh, but you know, some sometimes it decreases, but it's not super low, and you'll have to just um, you know speak with the patient and make a decision that makes sense for that individual patient. I know that we, I don't we want to we want an answer today? No, biomarkers <laughs> I I I yeah. well, yeah. is the way to go. Yeah. Whether or not yeah. it's radiomics, whether or not it's uh, cell-free DNA, that's probably the future.
1: Mm. Yeah, Thank you yeah. very much for spending some time with us here at the VA, Dr. Way. really appreciate it. Real quick. Yeah.
0: We heard that you're starting a podcast.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, so one, one of the things I would, uh, I'm very keen to do is try to share the oral tradition of surgery. I think it's something that we miss out on sometimes because we're not always at the scrub sink with the attending in the middle of the night to get that tip of that, that special little tip about how to do things well. And so, you know, we're working with the American College with the uh, Residents Association to put an educational podcast multimedia but a real podcast to start trying to interview masters of surgery trying to understand from them you know what life tips what pro you know we call it pro tips you know life yeah, pro tips that person. they can uh, yeah. share with us And so we will let you guys know, the listeners here, when those are available for you. Uh, We're going to interview some of the legends of HPV surgery. So um, I think we can all learn. Uh, The Tims can learn. I can learn. And all the listeners can learn learn, um, learn. uh, from uh, some of the, the great experiences. And if any of the listeners have ideas about who we should interview, they should definitely let us know as well.